Welcome to the Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we're lucky to have in the studio Mr. Matt McElwain uh, from Androna. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much. For sure. So, Matt, um, for people... In the community, I mean, everyone has, everyone knows about Madrona. Everyone thinks about Madrona. I mean, yeah. and so tell, just tell us. It'd be fun to hear an update, um, sort of what's going on on the Madrona front. Like, what are you guys thinking about in terms of the investments you like to see or things that make you curious? Yeah, uh, yeah we'd love to hear kind of how 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 how's life in Madrona these days. Well, thanks, Joe. I mean, we're we're really excited about what's going on here in the uh, the Seattle and Pacific Northwest uh, innovation ecosystem. I think the thing that's important to understand about Madrona and how we approach things is that we have this interesting combination of being there with the entrepreneur from day one all the way through the journey. And you know, there's some great types of investors and partners that will be with you early on. You know, we'll generally call those folks angels investors. And there's some like growth stage and later stage venture investors that help you in the later parts of the journey. We're there all the way through. So kind of day one investing for the long term is kind of the unique aspect of what Madrona does. And we do that, of course, across the entire information technology spectrum. So everything from, you know, consumer internet to, you know, uh, you know, software to cloud computing to some of the hot topics of the day, like virtual and augmented reality or machine learning and, and, and artificial intelligence. We could talk about any of those topics, but, uh, you know, we really go across that spectrum, but we get involved early. And, you know, it's been interesting over the last 20 years and, you know, now, you know, you know, well over a billion dollars of capital that we've been able to invest in helping build these companies to see the kinds of things that have changed. And part of the way you've seen it is through companies that we were there at the beginning, like Impinge, which is now in a public company, or Aptio, which is now a public company, or Redfin, which went public last year, and seeing the kind of, you know, common struggles that you face early on in the life of a company and what you ultimately get to on, you kind of on the back end as a, as a larger, successful, rapidly growing uh, business. Right. Well, what about, you didn't mention uh, blockchain in your, <laughs> <laughs> in your recitation of things. Are you guys, I mean, is that a space you're looking at or thinking about or? Yeah, I think in the last three years, we've had at least four deep dives on blockchain. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think you got to break uh, apart the phenomena into three buckets. Okay. Uh, you know, there's kind of this underlying technology, let's just call it blockchain for sure. the sake of, sake of simplicity. Yeah. And blockchain has uh, this, it's, it's kind of a trusted network where you have a distributed system where, because I don't actually have a central control point, I can uh, presumably trust the system to clear transactions right. uh, or clear kind of uh, different sort of uh, processes. Right. And that's a pretty cool capability set to have. Right. Um, I think there is a question of are there some boundaries around that trusted, the so-called trusted network when it's highly distributed the way it is? I think we're seeing some challenges with that right now, even at that base technology layer. The next thing is that somebody builds something on top of it. Now, the generic term is a token, um, but sometimes those tokens are become effectively a currency. Right. Now, Bitcoin's an example of that. Ethereum's an example of that. Ripple's an example of that. Um, and there's two issues with that. One is, you know, is there, just like any currency, what's the underlying value of that currency? Well, in Bitcoin, there's a scarcity of, you know, the amount of Bitcoin, you know, that can be created, at least in theory. Right. Um, uh, and, and then there's a, well, you know, okay, is that going to be enough to create some kind of a sustainable value versus a, another currency that's presumably backed by some kind of an underlying economy, you know, kind of a, a, a federal or kind of, you know, kind of international currency. The challenge there that's also problematic is, is it a stable currency? 
Um, and one of the things that we're seeing on some, from a stability perspective is that, uh, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of speculation going on in these currencies, and so that's what makes it hard. So that's the second layer, and that's basically these tokens or kind of stores of value that can be functioning as currencies. We actually think there's some opportunities in both those layers. The area that we're pretty skeptical about or most skeptical about is ICOs or, or initial coin offerings because that just feels like in many cases you're misrepresenting the value that you're getting for purchasing the coin offering and it's going to be subject to both you know FTC regulation and SEC regulation or Securities and Exchange Commission regulation and that a lot of those stories are going to end in tears. So that's breaking it out, you know. And yeah, do we think that you know some markets are going to be highly disrupted by you know this distributed uh, you know trust network? Absolutely. Uh, but then I guess that leads to a broader point, which is you know when you start with a real customer problem, and then you work your way back to figure out how does the state of technology today enable me to solve that problem better than it's ever been solved before. That's an interesting way to start having a conversation about, you know, a potential business and a potential team that might be backable. Right. Yeah, Mike and I have talked a lot about this on the show, that latter point mm. of yours, which is, and Mike and I, Mike's a, Mike's a developer and has mm. been a, a developer of apps since, mm. like, the first iPhone SDK came out or there something. There you go. Mike. So you've been yeah, yeah. building apps for a, a long time. So Mike's really, but anyway, I love, I love this idea. We talk about this idea a lot of, like, hey, you've got to figure out you got to figure out what the real pain problem is mm. you're solving. Yes. And then, yeah, technology is awesome, and you can do all sorts of really nifty and cool things. But if you just start building a nifty and cool thing without figuring out what what's the fundamental problem. Well, yeah, that's, let's, that's absolutely right. And let's take a, another example. I mean, machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, right. we we in, our first company that we invested in, uh, you know, in the space, you know, was a company called uh, Turi. Uh, it was founded by Carlos Gestrin, who's the Amazon professor of machine learning at the University of Washington. He knew a lot about the space, and right. he and his PhD students were trying to train these different, you know, machine learning models, and they found that there was no good, simple system for doing that. And so they created this system, they open-sourced it, it was called GraphLab, and lots of people started using it. And before you know it, they realized that they were solving a real problem of folks that were trying to build a machine learning model, you know, basically on their laptop, and then ultimately wanted to deploy it somewhere like in the cloud, like in AWS. That was a real problem that needed to be solved. It was early days of machine learning and they wanted to try to democratize machine learning in a way that people could turn their legacy applications into intelligent apps or just build new intelligent applications from the get-go. Right. Brilliant idea, ended up getting bought by Apple and now we, all of us that have iPhones, and you know, Mike being an iOS developer, you know, there is the, you know, there's the ML kit inside you know, the development platform for any, you know, for for the Apple iPhone, and those guys have been very, uh, those guys meaning the Dato Turi team have been critical in uh, helping Apple become more machine learning forward. Wow, yeah, that's a good story. Yeah, that's a good story. So yeah, so Mike and I talked a lot about crypto on the yeah. on the show too. Yeah, and, I, and so I'm, I'd be curious. So you said you've taken four deep dives. Does that mm -hmm. mean you've taken four really good solid looks at prospective investments in those places and then haven't haven't done an investment yet? Yeah, we haven't done an investment yet. Um, I think it's probably clear to say that we we probably should have you know somewhere and there's some there's some angles on it that 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 uh, you know I think have had more success than we than we had originally anticipated so just to be candid about that there's a lot of stuff though that we would not invest in at all in the area and there's also certain kind of categories of things that 
you know, kind of push up against a speculation uh, that are not really a fit for what we do either. Um, I mean, we're trying to build, you know, kind of substantive companies that are taking advantage of disruptive technological trends and kind of business model trends. And, uh, you know, my, my guess is that either some of our existing companies or potentially new investments will have a dimension of blockchain technologies applied to how they're solving their problems. Right. You know, but uh, nothing to announce at this time. Right. Yeah, one of the things that, that's tricky about the blockchain is, you know, it sounds like it's it's very disruptive technology and it's it's really interesting technologically, you know, what, what it will enable. But when you're trying to think about what companies will benefit from it, it's a little bit hard to pin it down because, you know, this decentralization and, and um, taking tr taking the trust out of the equation, uh, you know, it's it those types of things have never really hindered companies. You know, th they're not great for consumers because all of our data ends up centralized in one place or we're relying on one company as a single point of failure for things. But but in terms of like building a business, it seems like there's very few businesses that that aren't possible if you're willing to sort of bake the trust into the company instead of the blockchain. Um, you know, so like, for instance, making a currency, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, Disney has their Disney bucks that you spend yeah. at the Disney park. I mean, it's, it's not like you need a blockchain in order to create your own currency or your own gift card economy around your business. If people are willing to trust your business. Um, so it's like, so what does the blockchain do for companies like that, that, you know, potentially could, could already issue their own, um, you know, credits or, or, um, you know, be, be, be that centralized place. In fact, as a business, you're probably better off being the central location for that for that stuff. The decentralization maybe doesn't even benefit you that much. Certainly doesn't benefit. It's hard to figure yeah. out who wins. That's right. doesn't benefit Disney in all likelihood. I think that there's some interesting things with digital assets. So, like, if I got Disney characters and I can authenticate that this is a version of this character and you have rights to use this version and maybe you have a version that's, you know, dressed or decorated or, or equipped in certain ways. So I think areas like kind of differentiated content like the Disney, you know, you go into gaming uh, and even esports potentially. I think there's some areas like that where you could have a lot of, a lot of power from, uh, from, you know, both blockchain technologies and di digital stores of value and authentication of the value of a digital good. So we'll, we'll see where that yeah, one goes. I think, yeah, I could see it being more of a lower layer. Like, so, so people are thinking about this stuff in terms of how do we create a currency or how do we create a, how do we use a blockchain technology to facilitate, you know, creating a new thing or, or a new company. But it seems like maybe the, the value of the blockchain will be more about kind of programmable money and, and creating this additional layer on the internet where people can bake, can, can build uh, applications that can buy and sell things or, or, or exchange value with each other without having to work through any centralized authority be because it's distributed and because you don't have to trust a single other company. Maybe it'll be more like a, you know, open standard, right. kind of like, like how people would build websites. Um, maybe, maybe it enables, uh, you know, a, a different type of application that doesn't, uh, where, where computers can exchange value more easily. Yeah. Well, Maybe there's something there. Yeah, it's hard to predict what that would look like. Could be, but I think this is another good example of how things get overhyped or maybe are underhyped. And, uh, you know, I think this area is overhyped. Uh, arguably, AI and ML is overhyped, but I guess, if, you know, a little bit when we talk about this idea of sort of the future of applications, sort of the setup there is there's really kind of four layers of that. Okay. And the bottom layer is infrastructure, right, which is the boring stuff. And yet it's not so boring that 10 years ago, the cloud really didn't exist. And today, you know, AWS is an over $20 billion a year revenue business. Um, and, you know, that's right in our backyard here, of course. And what's even more interesting is infrastructure is going from cloud to this whole thing that we'll generically call serverless technology, 
which is just a massive disruption of how applications are built and run and can scale and do different things. And there's different terms like microservices and serverless and event-driven functions. We don't need to get all in the weeds on that. But just at that layer, the next 10 years is all about, let's call it serverless. You go up the next layer of the stack and you got applications, right? And 10 years ago, people kind of looking at you crazy when the guys at you know, Concur and Salesforce were really fully embracing software as a service. But now, most of the apps we use are software as a service. And so that's been a massive change in the last 10 years. Next 10 years is about these intelligent applications. So that my app is not just software, but it's really dataware. It's really the idea I've taken data, I've trained models, those models make predictions, and those predictions are embedded into the apps I use. And before you say, wow, that seems crazy and abstract, what is Spotify? It makes intelligent, predictive recommendations for you around music. Same with Netflix, same with Amazon when you're buying products. So we use intelligent apps all the time in our consumer lives, and those are just going to spread throughout the commercial world. And then finally, at the top layer of the stack, because the fourth area is a little bit different, but at the top layer of this sort of you know, application stack is the idea of how I interface with the data and I interface with the app. And we're going from type, which was 10 years ago, touch is today, to multi-sense. We're going to vision, we're going to gestures, we're using voice. You know, there's a kind of a multi-sensory way that we're interfacing with content and compute that's going to just revolutionize the way we interact in the next 10 years. So that's a big bucket of things. And the last piece, of course, is that how do I combine my digital world and my physical world, a la the Amazon Go store or even the Amazon bookstore, or I guess, you know, Prime, Prime Foods, which some people call Whole Foods, uh, you know, which are all different variations on the digital and the physical coming together in innovative ways. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. So this is, uh, so tell me, like, um, the kind of the current Madrona fund right now. Yeah. Kind of where, where are you guys at in that cycle? Are you guys yeah. in the middle of a, a current fund, or how, how yeah. where, are you, where are you sitting right now? Yeah, so we um, raise a new fund every three to three and a half years. Okay. Um, our last fund was in 2015. Okay. So the math would suggest that we'll do th that again this year. Okay. Uh, the way we do it is we, we raise our fund and then we say, we'll let you know when we need to start using it. Right. And then, you know, when we need to start using it, we'll start using it. And what I mean by that is, you know, going back to this idea of being there from day one for the long term, right. you know, uh, those companies I was referencing that went public, their average age when they went public was like 11 years old. Okay. So that's a long time if you were there at day one. Right. And that also often means that you've needed a lot of capital, a lot of, you know, kind of hands-on value add. And so when we make initial investments, we might put, you know, three to seven million dollars into a series A, but we reserve a ton of capital from that fund to support those companies all the way through the journey. Right. Um, so, you know, we're, we're on fund six. It's a $300 million fund. You know, in all likelihood, at some point, there'll be a fund seven, and it'll probably be a similar size fund, and uh, we'll continue to keep doing what we're doing. Um, you know, we think of our team as having, you know, the investment professionals, uh, as well as a group of what we call our value-added team. Right. And those are folks that help you with strategic communication, or they help you with talent, or they help you with, you know, um, kind of operational scaling or tactical marketing. There's a whole bunch of important areas uh, that are... are that we can add value, but most of the time the value needs to be added by the, the entrepreneurs and the teams they build, the full-time teams. Right. We're just there to be, you know, kind of really, you know, active, engaged, hands-on support. Right. Yeah, but that's a, that's a nice, uh, mm. that's a nice feature, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, you get, uh, you get, you know, some, if, if, if Madrona is willing to invest, you get some funds, which is great, but you also have this, yeah. this support system and the support system extends beyond just, uh, 
um, some smart, you know, investment professionals. There's also people who can help with finding people to, to bring to yeah. your team or helping you with communications yeah. or how big is that within the firm of Madrona? How big is that group of people who help with those other things? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, there's about eight people on that team that are okay. dedicated to that. And then I think we feel like all of our investment professionals, so that's the, yeah. you know, the managing directors and the other, you know, kind of principals, you know, you know, kind of senior associates and whatnot, we're all there to be helping our companies. Sure. And so, you know, just last night I was making a, you know, an introduction, you know, for one of our uh, CTOs to one of the senior product people within Amazon Web Services because there was a topic that they should be talking about and, you know, making those kind of uh, connections is important. You know, I'm heading over to Microsoft this afternoon to meet with some folks that, you know, we are, you know, uh, partnering with some of our companies on. And so there's a lot of connective tissue and you should expect that from your your partners that are, you know, kind of investing capital and time and know-how into helping you build and turn your company into, you know, the best it can possibly be. The other thing is, is that we're big believers in the ecosystem. Uh, and so, you know, we want not only the Madrona portfolio companies to be helping one another, but more broadly, the whole ecosystem to be helping one another. And so that's why, you know, we've been the largest investor in tech stars in Seattle over the last many years. Right. It's why we have our own Madrona lab that, you know, kind of creates, you know, Mike Fridge and his team do an incredible job there, you know, iterating on ideas, connecting with talented people, and occasionally something comes about that gets spun out of the lab. Right. And, but we're also investors in Kernel Labs and Pioneer Square Labs, which are two other really great labs in town. Um, and we're also involved with a bunch of the angel community to create this broader ecosystem so that we can lift kind of the, the pie of, you know, innovation for the, for the whole community. And back to something that, uh, Joe, you and I were talking about earlier, you know, the whole idea that Seattle now, you know, here's a way to think about it. The five largest by market cap companies in the world are technology companies. Three of them are in Silicon Valley, two of them are in Seattle. Right. And so you're like, wow, we've got 40% of the largest companies and the most innovative companies in the world right here in our own backyard. And that's just a starting place. Yeah. And, you know, Microsoft, I think, has had a terrific, um, you know, kind of a sort of repositioning and, 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 and momentum to them the last four years under Satya's leadership. Uh, and of course, Amazon continues to innovate in all kinds of areas. But what's also interesting is Google has over 3,000 employees here. It's their second largest engineering office in the world. You know, we spun a company out of Google uh, a year and a half ago uh, called Heptio, uh, which is the team that built this layer to manage those serverless, you know, applications we were talking about before. Great team, but, you know, it's really fun to see that it's not just people coming out of Amazons or Microsofts, but it's the Googles and Facebooks and Apples now that's growing their presence here, partly by buying some of our companies. But then you got these great serial entrepreneurs, too. So it's a really cool ecosystem. Oh, yeah, it's a great thing. Hey, I was, I was uh, remembering... Uh I was remembering, remembering this morning that great debate we had. Remember uh, that debate? Yeah. So, so Mike, I don't know if you remember this or not, but a few years back, I don't know how many years ago, yeah. there was a statewide initiative to put an income tax in place in Washington State, and uh, I don't, I forgot who who was the instigator, but somehow I managed to get you <laughs> and Lou McMurrin to debate Bill Gates Senior and uh, Nick. Yeah, Hammer yeah, that in, was fun in the big in the big conference room at Davis yeah, Wright. And we, yeah. we had King Five there, and we had a pretty good group. I mean, we had yeah. a couple hundred people show up and. I mean, I, or maybe it was 150 yeah. or something, but I yeah. thought it was a really good debate. Yeah, um, it was a really good discussion. And so let's, it's fun to look back sometimes because that was 2010. Okay. That was almost eight years ago. That debate took place in the summer of 2010. That yeah. initiative was on the ballot. And the initiative was to create a state income tax and uh, it, it, to, to fund education. 
uh, was kind of the principal pitch. Um, and, you know, valid argument. Uh, and we thought, uh, you know, the kind of the opposition side of it, that that was not going to be in the best interest of all the citizens of Washington State. And so it's interesting to see what happened. That originally, when it was polled, you know, it was going to, everybody thought it was going to pass. And it ended up losing 64% to 36% in the state of Washington. By that proposition losing, we were all winners, because here's what's happened. We can now look back objectively and see the state tax revenues have grown from $28 billion at that point in time to over $40 billion today. I mean, our, our state unemployment rate and the city of Seattle's unemployment rate are, the, are at record lows, and our job wage growth is twice the national average. So there, it's, it's indisputable that the economic growth in the city and the state has been better. But here's the final kicker. Our average um, spending per pupil in education in the state of Washington has gone up over $3,000 to over $12,500. And in the city of Seattle, we're spending almost $16,000 per pupil per year on education. And the final thing about that is they did all that at the state legislature to their credit. And they lower tuitions 20% at all the universities and colleges in yeah, the state. So yeah. it's pretty phenomenal what has happened because we rejected a state income tax. Right. Yeah, this is one thing. I, I know some states, some states have gone to uh, uh, no, no, no fees for tuition mm. for you know, college students in their states. I, I don't know. It seems like if we could do something like that in Washington State, that would be pretty phenomenal. Well, you know, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think that I'm a big believer in making educational, quality educational opportunities affordable and accessible at all levels of the educational system from, you know, from pre-K through, of course, secondary school and on into college. I happen to believe there's a, there's a concept uh, Arthur Brooks at the uh, American Enterprise Institute talks about, which is earned success. I think that for all of us, if we had to work, and often part of that work element is pay something for something, we right. value it a lot more. Right. People can disagree with that philosophy, uh, but that I find that in my own life, my own life experience, you know, you know, my dad was the first person in his family to go to college. My mom never went to college. They met in the military. You know, so a lot of my life has been working my way through different opportunities, taking advantage of them to you know, have some, you know, with a little bit of luck, you know, some success. And I think that people feel good about that. They feel like they're making a difference. Part of that is working hard. Part of that is, you know, the things that you pay for, you value more. So yeah. I think we want to make it affordable and accessible. I don't know if free is necessarily the best approach to that. Right. Yeah, well, Mike, maybe, you know, maybe the, the, I think there's something, um, something related to the blockchain and funding mm -hmm. education that's possible. There. I don't... They should put it with that. Uh, have you ever looked at that GET program? That it's been a while since I've looked at it. But the the University of yep. Washington and this this the, I guess the Regents and their system. It's kind of an interesting yeah. investment uh, proposition where you can prepay for um, for credits at at universities in Washington. And it's kind of an interesting investment because you know generally speaking, you think of tuition as kind of constantly going up. Um, like it's hard to imagine in in twenty or thirty years that tuition would be you know, much, much lower than it is now. Although I guess, you know, if you bought into the GET program and then they decided to make tuition free or really low cost, you'd be sort of out. Um, it's it's an interesting vehicle. Um, I haven't uh, bought any of those credits, but I know people Yeah, no, it's have. a great program, actually. Um, and, and, and you're actually getting at one of the things that was interesting on, by lowering tuitions, actually, the state, I think, saved some money because the state was on the hook to honor those GET program credits 
And by not keeping on the rate of increasing tuitions, in fact, lowering them, it actually helped them fund some of the students that were, in fact, you know, years later having bought the GIT credits when their kids were a lot younger and now were going to school. So I think that was a funny kind of budgetary thing, the way that worked out. But, you know, it was smart to do it that way. Um, you know, I think that there's lots of places where we do need to invest. And, you know, whether that's, you know, infrastructure, uh, whether that's education, certainly housing. I mean, economic growth, just like growth in a company, you know, things break uh, and things run out of capacity. And so, I think, you know, we got to take streets crumble. Streets, st streets, <laughs> the absolutely. Streets in Seattle. You know, my son the other day, my youngest son was like, "So exactly, why do potholes happen, Dad?" I'm like, well, you know, as we got into that conversation, but yeah, you do need the resources now. You know, uh, to bring it forward on this tax thing, not to belabor it. You know, so now the C Seattle City Council passed a a you know an income tax for the city. And the reality there, you know, so some of the folks that, you know, were involved with the state income tax thing kind of came back together on the ready there is it's just against the law. I mean, it's against the state law. We've already had a, a county judge find in, in, in favor of it being against the law. In other words, invalidating it on legal grounds because both, you know, the state has to say that a local government can, can create a tax on something. And then secondarily, there's actually a state provision from 1984 which says you can't tax income. Uh, you know, at a local level. So I think that I think that's going to sort itself out in general. But I think there's a philosophy of, you know, are we trying to create a bigger pie? And then of that bigger pie, i.e. growth, growth and growth and tax revenues, are we investing it wisely to help the broadest, you know, kind of reach of our community? Right. Yeah, these are all difficult, hard questions, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no, no, no really there's, good answer. There's not. Um, although I do wonder, I mean, I, as a driver on Seattle, it just seems like all the streets are just in poor repair. Yeah. And I wonder what the plan is for this summer to, I mean, hopefully there's a lot of road work yeah. uh, improvements that are scheduled. I imagine there is, but um, who knows, when you have all these big towers being built and these big trucks coming in, it, the, yeah. the roads just take kind of a beating. Uh, that's true. Well, I'm cautiously uh, optimistic um, uh, about some of the new leadership in the city of Seattle. I think they have a focus on you know, some of the really important basics for all the citizens and then also being aspirational on some of the harder challenges. Right, right. So Mike, getting back to, uh, getting back to the future apps, Mike's, let's talk about that some more. So Mike, uh, talk to us about kind of how you've tried to evolve your app and how that kind of fits in with Matt said about the future of apps and how you think about them. Yeah, it's probably a, a good opportunity to, to say, I mean, these things, we tend to put these things out a couple of weeks mm -hmm. after we record them, but um, but so I've been talking on and off, like since we've been we've been doing this show for a few years, but in the past two years, I've been building this um, software as a service-based meditation mm -hmm. platform that's kind of the evolution of the apps that I sell on the App Store. So I've got this line of meditation apps that have been selling on iOS and Android for almost 10 years. I've got a pretty big user base and people like the apps, but they're kind of, they're following kind of an old model where people pay mm -hmm. once. And, um, and so for the last couple of years, we've been building a larger platform, kind of like a Netflix or Headspace mm -hmm. or Calm uh, type of a platform. But in order to support the subscription model, we felt like we kind of had to build this larger web platform as opposed to something that exists primarily as an app. Um, so anyway, that, that launched for, for people that have been kind of following that journey through through side comments on the on the um, podcast. It's 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 live and, and we, we launched uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, the app's called Holistrio. Um, you can find it at holistrio.com. Maybe we'll put a link in the in the show notes. Um, and it's uh, it's live on the App Store and on Android. And it's um, 
we've we've kind of did our first initial push and got our first batch of, of paid subscribers and so things are kind of up and running um, so if anybody wants to check that out I'd love for you to take a look at it but that's that's kind of part of a larger look at sort of where apps are going you know it's, it's difficult to sustain an app business with um without a subscription model at this point um, you know it's just hard yeah I think that's an interesting point yeah that's a really good point and uh, uh, subscription is a, a big part of how business models are changing. Uh, and, it, and what's interesting about that is if you can get the, the, the subscription uh, model going and you can have a very high renewal rate, you can create incredible um, you know, predictability in businesses, which allows you to be financed in different ways. And you know, we've got an incredible company called Smartsheet, which is modern collaboration for teams um, that has you know, millions of users and you know, you know, uh, you know, tens and tens of thousands of paying customers. And, you know, they just started out with this simple collaboration tool and you can, there's different views. There's a spreadsheet style view. There's a calendar view. There's kind of a Gantt charty sort of view. And it just makes it easy for teams, any team that, you know, all the unstructured work, you know, versus the kind of more structured stuff that the, you know, that the finance people do or something. This is like the marketing team, the sales team. So what's cool about that is that you're starting to see those kinds of applications now be interfaced in different ways. So let's go back to your meditation app, Mike. You know, uh, I don't think it's too far down the road where, you know, I'll want to be able to ask for, you know, kind of what's my daily, Alexa, what's my daily meditation or, you know, something like that. And, you know, maybe initially you can't, you know, charge for that subscription, but as you have a following folks will, you know, you know, be willing to pay for that subscription and even better yet with some kind of a camera slash image type of, 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 of echo, product like the Echo Show, there's actually not just a voice, or there's not just a, a, a sound component to the service, but there's also a visual component to the service. So those kinds of innova- innovations, I think, are going to, you know, kind of come down the road here pretty quickly. Yeah, the Alexa yeah. stuff is already, um, I mean, you can sort of build an Alexa app right now that dovetails with a subscription service, but it's the, the trickier part is, um, I don't know, educating customers on how to enter their login information through the Alexa app. It, it still needs a bit of evolution, but it's a yeah, it's not a it's it's not a bad way, you know. Particularly when you're talking about a subscription service, you want people to be able to access the thing they bought from as many places as possible. And um, and the Alexa speaker, mm-hmm. particularly since in in my case the 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 content that we distribute is you know primarily audio. It's a really good fit for something like this a, a smart speaker. Um, yeah, it's it's um, one of the things that I should mention that was I thought I found to be kind of interesting and surprising. There was a little bit of paranoia on my part because we've got this this big list of customers that really like our apps, but they like our apps, uh, and they've they've kind of got, have a price anchored in their head that that my apps should cost about three dollars a piece. Um, and so mm. there was a little bit of worry when we started working on this pricing for the new subscription service because the new thing costs depending on how you subscribe it's it's something like eighty dollars a year if you pay for a year and ten dollars a month if you pay for uh, you know, month at a time. So we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, 80 to a hundred dollars, somewhere around that, um, per year, uh, for something that, that is, I mean, it's, it's much broader and there's a ton more content. And so it's a lot better than what people used to mm-hmm. get for $3. But at the same time, you know, their expectation is I pay $3. I, I get the content. I listen to it as much as I want. And I was a little worried that, you know, we would send this mass, um, mailing out to our list and let them know the new thing exists and that there would be some like, you know, resentment or pushback from at least some people saying, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Like, this is not what I expect this stuff to cost. I love your app, but I don't really love the idea of paying a hundred dollars a year for it. Um, it's been a couple of years since we started, but we got zero, zero pushback from anybody. Not a single customer emailed me back and said, this is not cool. 
um, which is was really surprising. Um, so that's great news. Well, I think that's probably because you curated you curated the content well, and I think that's I mean that's the really interesting battleground right for the future i mean you've seen that in you know the spotify you know taylor swift you know back and forth who's got the leverage is the content creator or the content distributor um you know similar with what's going on with original content with netflix and and amazon and prime and and and, and disney and others so i think these are very interest the content uh, battles at a more strategic level, but even you know you're being able to evolve your business into a subscription service because you ha- went out and made and/or curated you know quality content that it sounds like your your customers are happy with. Yeah, and I think it also just speaks to maybe the evolution of the marketplace and and how comfortable people are with subscriptions. I know I as a customer, I don't love it when I see something as a subscription as opposed to a flat fee. Um, but I think the appetite for that sort of thing has changed a bit and the uh, people have become a bit more accustomed to it. And so I feel like it's, um, you know, we probably should have launched this thing several years ago to get ahead of it. But, um, but I feel like we did launch it at a time when finally the market is a bit more accepting of the, of the model, which is nice. Well, just to back that up with a few interesting facts, if you take the music industry, 2016 was the first year in like almost 15 years, the music industry revenues grew. It was also the first year ever that subscription revenues were more than 50% of all music revenues. Wow. And then the last thing is, is that the average you know, consumer who had one of those subscriptions listened to 40 different artists in the typical month. Wow. So there was, there, partly there was more variety, selection, and discovery that was going on through those subscription services, which is ultimately not only good for the consumer, but good for different artists that are hoping to be discovered. And so they want to go through those kind of channels like the, uh, you know, the, the Spotify's and Pandora's. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, so um, if people want to get in touch with you, like yeah. just email you at your Madrona email address. It's and say really bye. simple, Matt, <laughs> M-A-T-T at Madrona.com. Yeah, feel free to, you know, uh, if, if, if I'm not the person who's best equipped to, to answer the question or, or, or look at the, the type of company, you know, we'll make sure you get in touch with the right person. Yeah, yeah, great. Great, and, and that's like, for, like, let's, well, I was going to say, for, for folks yeah. out there that are starting companies that maybe don't know someone at Madrona already, I mean, what is the best way for them to approach you all if they wanted to, to pitch you uh, for investment? Or, you know, what's, what's that, um, what's the best path look like for that? I mean, should they reach out to you, or is there a, is there a kind of an intake process? Or an inter- what yeah. do you recommend for folks that are trying to get to know you guys? Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, we do have, uh, you know, kind of general, uh, you, know, you know, let us know about your company and, and, and one of our team will, will take a look at, you know, the, uh, the, the overview, the materials. I think we also, you know, a lot of times, you know, folks like, you know, yourselves that are kind of longtime friends and trusted partners and say, hey, we've got this company. We think it's, you know, a good, good company and a good time for you to meet. That's really valuable to us. Um, but we also want to be accessible and if people want to reach out, they're, they're welcome to do so. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to figure out how to be best helpful. I think back to that idea, we're trying to build a bigger pie here in this ecosystem. You know, we do want to, we do want to be helpful and, uh, in, in, in folks thinking through the different, the different ideas that they have and the, in the, in the stages of the companies that they're at. That's great. Well, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. It's been really, really interesting. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, it's great to have yeah. you here. And uh, on the Seattle income tax thing, so that's, uh, I know you were, you formed a, an advocacy group yeah um, and where, where if people want to learn about that what's the easiest way for them to find that site oh thanks for asking it's, so it's called the opportunity for all coalition okay. so opportunity for all uh, is this is the website um, and uh, that's so that's the place to go uh, and yeah where it that specifically stands is as I mentioned 
the, the county judge found in our, our favor, so invalidated the law, yeah. and the city has now appealed that to the state Supreme Court. And that's going to go straight to the Supreme Court? Well, I actually think it, it's been appealed to the state Supreme Court. Our hunch is that the state Supreme Court will actually send it to an, uh, a statewide appeals court first. Okay. Um, but there's a whole set of machinations that lawyers like yourself understand better than I do uh, of where that, you know, the steps in that process, which will take the next several months. Right, right. Well, interesting and fun times, um, and I so I super appreciate you, or we super appreciate you being on the show, and um, yeah, we'll we'll follow along on the tax issues and everything else, and thanks thanks for your leadership on that. I think it's hard to it's hard to be um, I think it's hard to be a voice. Um, uh, sometimes I think it's hard to be a voice for. Uh, the opposite view yeah. on tax issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, I think the majority of folks in our state say, look, if you actually can have a lower tax rate yeah. and you are pro-investment and growth, it's going to be better for all of us. I think we've shown that over the last eight years going all the way back to 2010. I think that's the same basic view on this particular policy. And hopefully, um, you know, that'll prove to be true over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. And I wonder, I just, it's speculation on my side. And no one, of course, knows, but I mean, do you think Amazon's announcement to do an HQ2 had something to do with the Seattle income tax? I think more broadly, you know, I think Amazon's been pretty clear on, on the three main forces that led them to look for other places to have significant presence. One was the relationship, you know, kind of the strategic relationship with government, you know, both at the right. state and the, and the city level. Um, and there wasn't as good alignment there as I think, you know, they would have hoped for, understandable. I think there's also talent. There's no doubt that, you know, um, you know, talent is always a, 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 a battle, and there's specific kinds of talent in different areas from, you know, robotics to, you know, kind of ML more generally to logistics to software, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, there's infrastructure. Um, I happen to believe that, you know, with a good strategy and good alignment with government, that we could have all the infrastructure needed to meet Amazon and many other successful tech companies' needs and successful companies in general's needs over time in this state. But because we didn't have, I think, as good a relationship there, they felt like they needed to go find some other places with a little, maybe a little bit more ready infrastructure. Right. So. Interesting. Well, great. Huh. Fun stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. And thanks, uh, this guys. has been great. Uh, thanks, everyone else, for listening. We'll see you all next week.